Beloved, exactly five weeks from yesterday, 34 days from today, our country will remember the 20-year anniversary of the Muslim terrorist attack on 9-11. And we'll remember the thousands of lives that were lost as a result. Uh, one month after the savage attack, one month and a day, on October 12, 2001, a, a woman named Peggy Noonan wrote an article which appeared in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Miss Noonan was, by her own testimony, previously prior to writing this uh, article, had been a feminist earlier in her life. She had at one point been a speechwriter for President Ronald Reagan. The title of the article that she wrote was Welcome Back, Duke. Uh, Duke is, for those of you who are under the age of 40, that was the nickname of an actor named John Wayne that in the mid-20th century was kind of a, a, an iconic representation of masculinity in America. So it said, Welcome Back, Duke. The subtitle was, From the Ashes of September 11th, Arise the Manly Virtues. Uh, these are excerpts from the article that Miss Noonan wrote, again, on October 12, 2001. Men are back. A certain style of manliness is once again being honored and celebrated in our country since September 11th. You might say it suddenly emerged from the rubble of the past quarter century and emerged when a certain kind of man came forth to get our great country out of the fix it was in. I'm speaking of the masculine men, men who push things and haul things and pull things and build things. Men who charge up the stairs in hundreds of pounds of gear and tell everyone else where to go to be safe. Men who are welders, who do construction, men who are cops and firemen. They're all of them one way or another. The men who put the fire out, the men who are digging the rubble out, and the men who build whatever takes its place. And their style is back in style. We're experiencing a new respect for their old-fashioned masculinity, a new respect for physical courage, for strength, and for the willingness to use both for the good of others. But you didn't have to be a fireman to be one of the manly men on September 11th, Miss Noonan wrote. She said, those businessmen on Flight 93, which was supposed to hit Washington, the businessmen who didn't live by their hands or backs, but who found out what was happening to their country. And when they said goodbye to the people they loved, they snapped their cell phones shut and said, let's roll. These were tough men, the ones who forced that plane down in Pennsylvania. They were tough, brave guys. Now, it's hard to be a man, she says. I'm certain of it. To be a man in this world's not easy. Now, I know what you're thinking, but it's not easy to be a woman. And you're so right. But women get to complain and make others feel bad about their plight, Miss Noonan wrote. Men have to suck it up. Good men suck it up and remain good-natured, constructive, and helpful. Less good men become the kind of men who are spoofed on the man show, babe-watching, dope-smoking nihilists. Miss Noonan continued, I should discuss how manliness and its brother gentle manliness went out of style. I know because I was there. In fact, I may have done it. I know exactly when. It was the mid-70s. I was in my mid-20s and a nice big middle-aged man got up from his seat to help me haul a big piece of luggage into the overhead luggage space on an airplane. But I was a feminist and I knew our rules and rants. 
I can do it myself, I snapped. It was important he know that women are strong. I embarrassed a nice man who was attempting to help a lady, and I wasn't lady enough to let him. I bet he never offered to help a lady again. I bet he became an intellectual or a writer, and not a good man like a fireman or a businessman who says, let's roll. But perhaps it wasn't just me. I was there in America as a child when John Wayne was a hero and a symbol of American manliness. He was strong and silent. And I was there in America when they killed John Wayne with a thousand cuts. A lot of people killed him, Miss Noonan writes, not only feminists, but peaceniks, intellectuals, and others. And when we killed John Wayne, you know what we were left with? We were left with the small, nervous, gossiping neighborhood commentator who wanted to talk about everything and do nothing. And that wasn't progress. It wasn't improvement. I missed John Wayne. Miss Noonan finished her article with these words. But now I think he's back. I think he returned on September 11th. I think he ran up the stairs, threw the child over his back like a sack of potatoes, and he came down and then shoveled rubble. I think he's back in style and none too soon. Welcome back, Duke. And once again, thank you, men of September 11th. End quote. Beloved, you see, Miss Noonan understood something. She understood that God created man and woman differently. Male and female, he created them in his own image. And he created men and women with different callings. And as we think that 20 years have elapsed, how far and how sad we have fallen as a country. But not as a community. Not as a community of believers. Not as a community of men and women with a firm foundation, with a secure salvation. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Steve Lawson said, there are only two kinds of preachers. Those who preach the Bible and those who need to resign. (laughs) According to the Puritans, for the heart of the preacher to burn in the pulpit, the fire must first be lit in the study. And a quote from Charles Spurgeon, which even ties into, in a sense, and connects this dynamic of preaching the word of God and the masculinity that we opened up with. Spurgeon said, Give us all the crudities of the wildest backwoods preacher rather than the perfumed prettiness of effeminate gentility. Beloved, in Ephesians chapter 5, our passage this morning are verses 25 through 27. In verses 22 through 33, we have tremendous words of wisdom from God to all Christians. And in particular, with particular application to wives in verses 22 through 24, and then the husbands in verses 25 through 27. Because from day one of creation in the garden, well, actually day six, uh, from day six of creation in the Garden of Eden, the most basic, fundamental, and important social institution in the world is marriage. We know from the counsel of God that marriage is permanent, sacred, intimate. It is mutual and it is exclusive. One man, one woman for life. 
We know that the model of a well-run household provides a foundation for a well-run church. We see that from the qualifications given by God to men who would be pastors and elders in 1 Timothy and in Titus. We understand that we have no witness in the world if we can't transform our own homes. Beloved, a Christian marriage is one of the clearest, if not the clearest, living illustrations of the gospel. Beloved, please follow along. I'm going to begin in verse 22 to remind us of what we covered. And it's been about a month since we looked at the wise. But verses 22 through 24, and then we'll pick up our text in 25. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. God says to the apostle Paul, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but so that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself. And let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, again, it's been a month since we've been with the wives. I was gone on vacation for two weeks. Tim Palin, the chairman of our elder board, brought the word of God to us. I live streamed from up in Flagstaff. And then the last two weeks, I did a two-week series on singles. But the outline that we have here this morning, which flows directly from the text, in essence, God gave the same outline to the wives as he gives now to the husbands, which is a command, a comparison, and a cause. A command from God, a comparison, and then a cause, an objective, a goal. And the intent here is that you will know, you men, you husbands will know the kind of husbands you are to be and the man to seek. That's actually the sermon title. This is part one of the husband to be and the man to seek. The sermon title for the two-part series on wives was the wife to be and the woman to pursue. And there's a slight word change there because... To be sure, husbands, this is the kind of husband you are to be. Single men, if you think that you might want to be a husband, this is the kind of husband that you should be. Or any man, the virtues we see in here are good for any man to aspire to. For you ladies who are wives, 
This is the kind of man you are to pray to God and to encourage that your husband may become even more of. And for you single ladies, this is the kind of man you are to seek. And that's where the word change comes in. By God's virtue of created order, men pursue, women can seek. There's subtle things you can do, but there's a difference there. In any event, that's the reason behind the slight nuanced difference in the sermon titles. Beloved, in God's sovereign wisdom, he made the marriage for the husband to lead and for the wife to follow. And what we have here in verses 22 through 33 is a beautiful picture of godly wives joyfully submitting and godly husbands lovingly leading. And we know that this kind of marriage produces the best children, the happiest home, and the most effective witness for the gospel. Well, let's begin to unpack the riches God has for us here this morning with the command from God. Now, pause for a moment. If you hadn't read forward, if I hadn't read this, if you didn't know what was coming at this point, we know from verses 22 through 24 that the wife is the helpmate and the husband is the head. God commands the wife, the helpmate, to submit. Now, what would we think would be the parallel command for the head? One might think from a human wisdom standpoint, right after he tells the wife to submit, husband, lead your wife. But that's not what God says. He says, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. This is the supreme duty as husband. At the horizontal level, this is the first priority men that you have as husbands love your wives the word translated love here is agapao Uh, tim when he did his first message i think four weeks ago did a great treatment on this word on the kind of agape love the kind of self-sacrificing kind of love that is agape love agape love beloved and there's different greek words that can be translated as love. The agape love, which has a unique Christian connotation, no one has been able to find agape as a Greek word meaning love prior to the New Testament. This kind of agape love that God calls all Christians towards, but in particular right here, you husbands, is intelligent, feeling, willing, and serving. It means thought, sensitivity, intent, and action. Agape love is a deliberate attitude of the mind. It's active and unceasing care in this context for your wife's well-being, for her shalom, for her wellness. Now, it's interesting, in the English language, we use the word to describe emotions, feelings, desires. I mean, I love Thai food. I actually love most kinds of food, but... (laughs) I I love trail running. I, I mean, there's lots of things I could say that I love or we say that we love. But beloved, we must not let our generic use of the word cheapen the import and the weight of what God is talking about here. Agape love is not merely a feeling. It does encompass and include feeling, but it's not merely a feeling. It's not something you fall into. that He fell in love like he fell into a hole. It's certainly not something that you fall out of. He fell out of a tree. No, agape love is a choice first. It's an act of the will. It's, in this context here, obedience to God's command, men. 
This is not God's suggestion. This is not God's good idea. This is not take it or leave it. This is God's command to you as a husband. And this kind of agape love, even embedded in the meaning of the word, it leaves no room for some kind of bossy, domineering, judgmental kind of headship on the part of a husband. Neither domination, all the way from God's judgment in the Garden of Eden, we understand that after the fall, there will be trouble in marriages. And it is not domination, nor can it be abdication. It can't be some effeminate, wimpy escaping out from the responsibilities God gives to the husbands. Beloved, agape love for all of us is not what I get, it's what I give. It's not what is due me, rather it is what I do. It's not self-satisfaction, it is at its very heart and soul self-sacrifice. Beloved, the Agape love a husband has is wonderful. Now, some of the other words, there's another word, uh, philistia, which means brotherly love. Uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, comes from that meaning. The brotherly love, which is a great affection. Uh, Storge is kind of a family kind of love. There's another word, eros, from which we get the English word erotic. Uh, which describes a sexual attraction. And to be sure, eros in many, many usages and cases, it's not found in the Bible, is certainly sinful. But not necessarily so in the context and the confines of the blessed union of a marriage. So the point is this. Agape love is infinitely above the Philistia brotherly love of affection or the eros love of attraction but agape love that a husband has for his wife includes the affection and includes the attraction beloved agape love is visible first john 3 18 let us not love with word or with tongue but in deed and in truth Uh, Agape love forgives, and it forgives without bitterness. In the companion letter that Paul gave to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 3, verse 19, he gives a very similar charge. He says, husbands, love your wives, and there he says, and do not become embittered towards them. So agape love forgives without bitterness. So in the very rare occasions, husbands, where you have to forgive your wife, as opposed to the multitude of times she has to forgive you, you can't become embittered towards her. That's even part of what it means to have this kind of agape love. The agape love respects, honors, guards, and protects. And by the way, as already, as already indicated, this is a command, and it's stated it with grammar that means it's standing orders. This is to be the habitual, always charge that God gives you as a husband. And in case we miss it here, the Apostle Paul will repeat it two more times in verse 28 and verse 33. Uh, turn for a moment to 1 Corinthians 13. In our public scripture reading, I read the entire chapter. I won't read the whole chapter again, but let's again remind ourselves about this kind of agape love that God talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, through the beginning of verse 8. There, Paul writes, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, it's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly, it doesn't seek its own, it's not provoked doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, 
This kind of agape love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, that's true for all Christians by virtue of the amazing love that God has demonstrated towards you as a forgiven son or daughter of God. We are to demonstrate this. Back here in Ephesians 5, husbands, men, you are to manifest this kind of love towards your beautiful wife. And what is the second greatest commandment according to Christ? It is to what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Husband, who is your nearest, most intimate neighbor that you have? Your beautiful wife. Ergo, love your wife as you love yourself. And in fact, we'll get that when we get to verse 28 and forward next week. Beloved, Agape love manifests itself in practice. It's a practical love, which means, among other things, the husband should be the first to apologize, the first to forgive, and the first to serve. All, beloved, listen, in the most fundamental, basic, most important institution in the world, love marks the one with authority. The one with authority vested by God for God's glory, for the blessing of the one that is under the authority. Love marks that one, agape love. That is the command from God to you husbands. Uh, Second is the comparison. We see this similar to what we saw again with the wives back in verses 22 through 24. We see the little words, in this case, just as, as, a simile. It's a comparison. It's a model. And we know that Paul's applications in Ephesians, especially the abundant applications that come in the second part of the book from chapter 4 and forward, Paul's applications in this letter are grounded in the initiative-taking love of God the Father and has already been communicated to us the supreme self-sacrifice of the Son. And it's that latter element that Paul zeroes in here for us in this comparison with Christ. The Son of Man, Jesus said, Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, beloved, we can't define for ourselves what loving our wives looks like. God gives very crystal clear Precept and example for us. Namely, agape love is a sacrificial love. Here in verse, at the end of verse 25. It's a sanctifying love. We'll pick that up in a bit in verses 26 and 27. But the agape love here is a sacrificial love. Look at the text. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Two past tense words describing what Christ has accomplished for his children. Throughout Ephesians, we've seen this before, Paul emphasizes God's great love for his people and the love we owe him and each other in return. And our love flows from and corresponds to the expression of God's love in Jesus for all believers right here for you husbands. And we understand that all our professions, claims, and activities are measured by this yardstick of love. Love is the test. 
In fact, look back at the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, to everyone, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's to all believers. Right here, verse 25 is to you husbands. And beloved, the Father commands and the indwelling Spirit enables. He loved us and gave himself up for her, the church. Freely, freely he loved, freely he died. We sing those words. He gave himself up. The once for all act of Christ. He was delivered, betrayed, mocked, spit upon, tortured, murdered. And you won't find the love of God in the New Testament separated from the cross. That's why Augustine said the cross is the pulpit from which God preaches his love to the world. Now, when we think of men and women in Scripture, there are wonderful examples of great love. Isaac loved Rebekah. Jacob loved Rachel. Boaz loved Ruth. But God here in Ephesians doesn't use any merely only human figure in Scripture. This is far more sublime, far more heavenly and impossible standard. This is the highest pinnacle of demand. No higher standard is conceivable. We can think, we can even compare. God set for the wives a a very high standard. Wives, submit to your husbands just as the church submits to Christ. But here, he sets an even higher standard for the husband because in the first case, it's the highest standard at the human level, the church submitting to Christ. That is the human standard, the human ideal. But for the husband, it's the divine standard. It's the divine ideal. This is part of the reason why when there's trouble in the marriage, regardless of from where the trouble originated, God knocks on the door of the husband first every single time. Beloved, in the Ephesians road we've traveled so far, we've seen that Christ's authority is not used to control the church, rather it's to care for the church and to reconcile the church to God at the cost of his own life. His voluntary abasement, humiliation, torture, and death is the model that is set here. So, Broadening out our scope, the wife is called to submit to a husband who is called to die for her, to die daily for her. I remember my beloved Margie in her final days of hospice, in the final three days when she was home in our guest room, and I I held her hand for three days straight. I remember I had, I don't know why this weird thought came to my weird brain, but I remember thinking during that time, if a gunman burst into the door, Without hesitation, I would take the bullet before my beloved, even though she was going to be going home to be with the Lord in but a couple days. Beloved, the idea here, husband, to your wife, as long as you draw breath, I will die for you. Christ's love for his bride, the church, means, men, that your love for your wife should be as broad, long, high, and deep. Go back to chapter 3. Remember what we already read about God's great love that has been demonstrated. In the middle of Paul's second prayer here in Ephesians, 
Verse 18, chapter 3, he says that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Men, that is the standard. That is your charge to love your wife with that kind of length, breadth, depth, and width. And I understand I'm a scientist. I know there's three dimensions, but God throws in a fourth dimension there, not time, to basically drive home the point. I'm digressing. Let's return back to the text. You get the point. Now, beloved, if this is to have any meaning for us, it must have meaning in small practical ways. The wife, the wise wife was entirely right when she told her husband. She said, now, dear, I know that you're willing to die for me. And I'm so thankful for that. And I know you're willing to die for me because you tell me often you are willing to die for me. And I thank you for it. But while we wait, do you think you could fill the time by helping me make the bed? (laughs) And beloved, the point is, this is a lofty and possibly high standard that can and should and must be worked out practically in small measures. You see, it's very easy for any husband in 21st century America, Christian husbands too, to say, well, I would die for my wife and absolutely mean it. It's very easy to say because at this point it's extremely unlikely you will be called to do that. The question, men, is are you willing to die daily for your wife? Are you willing to live for your wife? Are you willing to, by God's grace and mercy, to die daily for your wife by putting her aspirations, her desires, her goals, her comfort, her joy ahead of your own? That's the charge that is given here. As the head of the house, husband, you are the ultimate servant. And your wife's welfare is your primary concern at the human level. Men, lay down your life moment by moment, day by day, for your best friend. A command from God, a comparison with Christ, the third element here is a cause, a cause for your wife. Again, this is the motivation. This is the goal. And agape love is a foot-washing love. It's a sacrificial love. We saw that um, in verse 25. But it's also a sanctifying love that we see in verses 26 and 27. And we have seen again that Christ's authority over the church is not to subjugate, it is to save. God uses, Christ uses his authority as told us in Ephesians for the church's benefit and blessing. Following the example of Christ, the agape love for a husband is about care, not control. It's about responsibility, not rule. Biblical headship, beloved, never demeans the wife. The biblical headship, God spells out here, elevates the wife, exalts the wife, edifies the wife, encourages the wife. And what we see in verses 26 and 27, we, we see three purpose statements. In the English, you, it's marked off by the little word that. Uh, those of you that are in Raymond's Greek class, it's three hina purpose statements. We could say these two verses are purpose-driven. Or maybe not, because that phrase has kind of been soiled by recent happenings. But in any event, the sanctifying love, according to the purpose statements given here, this kind of sanctifying love purifies, presents, and perfects. First, the sanctifying love purifies. 
we know, we've seen that agape love is a practical love. It's a purifying love. At the beginning of verse 26, so that, there's the purpose statement, so that he might sanctify her. That set apart, sanctify, set apart as sacred, make holy, consecrate, purify is another good translation of that word sanctify. But Paul continues, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And the word translated as cleansed here in Ephesians 5.26 is used by Paul in his letter to Titus in Titus 2.14. Well, you read these words that God gave himself, Christ gave himself for us so that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify, same word, and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So you see the point that Paul is bringing out here back in Ephesians 5, 26, is he's describing the work that Christ has done for the church with this metaphorical expression of redemption. And he's using imagery in the first century Greco-Roman world, there was a real formal kind of bridal shower, not the bridal shower where, you know, the lady sits up here and, you know, gets gifts. Some of you ladies will know that, but there, it was a little literal bathing of the bride a washing and a cleansing, and that's the picture that Christ, or excuse me, that God is using here to describe the spiritual work that Christ has done on behalf of the church and is set as the model for you husbands. Now, to be sure, husbands, you do not redeem your wife from her sins by virtue of this, but it means at the top of your priority at the human level is her spiritual well-being, her good, her cleansing, her sanctification, her growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord as her Savior. And it's done with what? It's done with the Word there at the end of verse 26. Sin makes us guilty. Sin makes us dirty. In Christ, the church is free from the penalty of sin and is being cleansed from the pollution of sin. And that is your men's charge from God towards your beautiful wife. And again, it's done with the word of God in the child of God. Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word, a young man or a young woman. Lord, help me to treasure your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Or James 1, verse 18, the psalm passages are kind of in the context of the walk of a child of God. But even turning someone into a child of God. In James 1, verse 18, you read these words. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So, beloved, Jesus loved the church. He gave himself up for her. He sanctifies her, cleanses her, presents her, provides for her, and cares for her. Men, in the same way, Your loving and sacrificial concern for the well-being of your wife is a spring of spiritual life and shalom to her. You are her provider, protector, and her prophet. Husband, long to see your wife liberated from everything which spoils her true feminine identity and her growth from glory to glory as she is transformed in the grace and knowledge of God to more and more of his likeness. So therefore, shield her, guard her, protect her. This sanctifying love purifies. The second purpose statement, this sanctifying love presents. 
Uh, John Stott, in his commentary, had these words about what the church is like now compared to what the church will be like on that day. This is what Stott wrote, quote, The church's true nature will become apparent. On earth she is often in rags and tatters, stained and ugly, despised and persecuted. But one day she, the church, will be seen for what she is, nothing less than the bride of Christ, free from spots, wrinkles, or any other disfigurement, holy and without blemish, beautiful and glorious. That's why Paul says here at the beginning of verse 27, so that, second purpose statement, he might present to himself the church in all her glory. And by the way, the word church, uh, Paul uses the word church three times in the first 75% of this letter, in the first four and a half chapter. But he uses the word church six times in verses 22 through 33 because the great emphasis is on the comparison of Christ and the church and husband and the wife, the centrality of marriage. And the church here, beloved, is pictured as a young bride of dazzling beauty. And Christ is her advocate before the bar. He is our advocate before the bar of justice in heaven. It's the same thought that Paul wrote again in a companion letter to the church in Colossae. Colossians 1 verse 22, Paul writes, He's now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Husband, God will present you. Christ will, be, Christ will present you before himself holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's the beauty. That's the gift of salvation. And that's your charge towards your wife. And I love what the prophet Zephaniah had to say. This was speaking to the nation of Israel, but he was speaking to the children of God in the Old Testament with similar words of excitement about that day in the end when God's children appear before him. Zephaniah 3, verse 17, Yahweh, your Elohim, the Lord, your God, is in your midst. He is a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. That's what God will do for all of you if you're in Christ. And husband, that's the kind of heart attitude you have towards your wife's spiritual growth. Men, live so your wife may develop her full potential under God and become a complete Woman. In our men's ministry, we love Colossians 1.29 about presenting every man complete before the Lord. Husband, pray, live, seek the Lord, grow in Christ so that you can help present your wife complete, mature before the Lord. It's a sanctifying love that purifies, presents. Lastly, this sanctifying love of Christ, which is the model for the sanctifying love of the husband, perfects. We have seen that it is a sanctifying and cleansing work of guilt and pollution designed for the church's liberation and perfection. At the end of verse 27, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but so that, third purpose statement, so that she should be holy and blameless. Uh, the word translated as holy is the same root word as the word sanctify that we saw 
earlier. Consecrated, dedicated, set apart. Blameless is without defect or blemish. Faultless. Blameless and unblameable. And we've seen this couplet all the way back in Ephesians 1, verse 4, towards the beginning of that seminal, magnificent, long sentence that the Apostle Paul wrote from chapter 1, verse 3 through verse 14. Paul lays out God's intent even behind his election of his children. In Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him. So that is the foundation of the work of God which he mapped out before he even created the universe in the intra-Trinitarian counsel of God and mind of God. That is what is at work. And man, and that is made possible by the Father's election, the Son's redemption, and the Spirit's sanctification. And husbands, you join at the back end of that train in terms of seeking to be used by God for your wife's holiness and blamelessness practically even on the side of eternity. And as we get towards the conclusion, not quite there yet, but as we get close, Martin Lloyd-Jones had these great words of application. This is what the doctor wrote. He, the husband, must never have any desire for himself alone. He is no longer one man. He is no longer free in that sense. His wife is involved in all his desires. It's his business, therefore, to see that he is always fully alive to these considerations. He must never think of his wife, in other words, as an addition. Still less, and he apologized, still less, I am sorry, I have to use such an expression, still less as an encumbrance. But there are many who do so. To sum it up, this is a great commandment to married men never to be selfish. Men, this means you care for her soul, that she is cleansed from the old and consecrated to the new. And by the liberating power of the gospel and the same liberating power of the gospel that you seek to employ to be a blessing to your wife, God liberates and gives that liberating power of the gospel to you to fuel, men, your obedience to this great command, to this great task that you are called to. And beloved, the gospel plays out and is demonstrated to the world in your marriage and in my marriage, my wife's in heaven, but any event. One man said this, he said this, in the context of the gospel playing out and being demonstrated to the world. Every marriage everywhere in the world is a picture of Christ and the church. Because of sin and rebellion, many of these pictures are slanderous lies concerning Christ. But a husband can never stop talking about Christ and the church. You may not move your lips, but you are talking about Christ and the church by virtue of your life, of how you live, of what you do. The man continues, if he, the husband, is obedient to God, he is preaching the truth. If he does not love his wife, he's speaking apostasy and lies, but he is always talking. If he deserts his wife, he is saying this is the way Christ deserts his bride, which is a lie. If he's harsh with his wife and strikes her, he is saying that Christ is harsh with the church, another lie, end quote. Men, 
husband asks the question, does my marriage, insofar as it depends upon me, point to the ultimate marriage? Does my marriage display the union God intends by my heeding the instruction God provides? And I'll finish with a quick reference. The model in Ephesians 5 is the divine ideal of Christ. There is a great human model. In Genesis chapter 29, we know that Jacob, and I referenced this before, Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob served for seven years through the hand of Rachel. And then he was deceived, so he served another seven years Another seven years. And in Genesis 29, 20, we read the words, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, watch this, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. So the love of Christ is the model, but we have even models of other godly examples before us. Men, let us love our wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you again for your love, which is beyond comprehension, Lord. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for the salvation we enjoy in Christ. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for the work you're doing in this family of God at Santan Bible Church. Thank you for all the singles that we have here. Thank you for the wives that we have here, for the mothers and fathers, and thank you for the husbands. Help the men of our church to have this kind of sacrificial love, this kind of sanctifying love. And Lord, bless us as we continue our journey through this great book for our enrichment, for the blessing of our wives, of our children, for our witness to a lost and dying world, and ultimately, Lord, in the final end, for your glory and for your honor. And it's in your name, Lord, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.